Welcome to the Biner Family Speaker Series, a podcast dedicated to high-level research on contemporary anti-Semitism by fostering productive and collegial discussion of the most pertinent issues before us. Hosted by the Indiana University Institute for the Study of Contemporary Anti-Semitism. For more information about this speaker series, ISCA News, or videos of past webinars, please visit our website at isca.indiana.edu. And now to present our speaker, Dr. Alvin H. Rosenfeld. Special thanks, David, for joining us. We look forward to a really lively and very informative session. Uh, For those of you who have not yet read it, I strongly recommend David's book, Woke Antisemitism. Today's session with the author will deal, in fact, with much of the argument that he makes in that book. It's an extremely well-informed argument, well-informed from both a scholarly standpoint and a practitioner's standpoint. Um, Prior to establishing his own organization, which Gunther just mentioned, uh, David Bernstein had major roles with the American Jewish Committee and also with the Jewish Community Relations Council National organization. So he knows the questions that we're going to deal with, both from the inside as an advocate and practitioner, but also as a serious student of the subject as well. Uh, David, I want to begin by referring not to you, but to the person who wrote the foreword to your book. In fact, this book Uh, is prefaced by a few pages, but very incisively written pages, by Nathan Sharansky. And among other things, um, Mr. Sharansky, who needs no introduction to this audience, talks about himself as a former citizen of the Soviet Union. And as such, he said he's concerned about the emergence of a dogma, not unlike the totalizing ideology I grew up with in the Soviet Union. Those of us who know anything at all about the communist period in Russia are fully aware of what he's talking about. What we were not aware of is that anything even remotely resembling it might in fact take shape on these shores. But as Sharansky, in fact, looks at the present scene in America and elsewhere, it does concern him that echoes from his former time are coming back loud and clear here. David, your entire book is given over, in fact, to describing the onset of this very dogmatic ideology. Uh, It goes under a few different names. The one you chose is woke anti-Semitism. Among other things you say, woke ideology, and I'm quoting you, has its own internal logic, its own vocabulary, its own history, and its own dogma. Unpack that a bit for us, if you would. Yeah. Well, even since I've written the book, Woke Anti-Semitism, uh, the, the term woke has even become more controversial. It was already controversial by the time I was writing the book. Um, I knew I was sort of entering a, a, a controversy by just using the term. But since then, it's really become, um, you know, front and center of the public debate. 
Um, so I, let me define woke uh, for you, um, at least the way I use the word here. And I realize that there are people on the on the on the far right that are using it in a very mischievous way. They're in a promiscuous way and calling anything that they don't like woke. Um, I'm not trying to do that here. I don't think I do that in my book. And and so I want to be disciplined about how I use it um, by woke. I mean, two basic tenets. One is that. Um, bias and oppression are not just a matter of one's personal attitude, but are interwoven into the very fabric of society. They're systemic, they're structural, structural in nature. And the second tenet of this of this ideology is that only people with the lived, lived experience of oppression have the standing and the insight in, in the public discourse to be able to articulate it for the rest of us. And it is that second tenet that can weaponize the first. It says that only, only we get to describe it. And what we're describing is a structural phenomenon. And you must abide by that because we have the lived experience to articulate it. Now, I just want to say that both of those tenets can be true. It can be true that that oppression or bigotry are systemic, right? It's not, um, I mean, um, Nazi Germany, there was systemic anti-Semitism. Um, Jim Crow America, there was systemic racism. But that doesn't mean it's always true. And it's not certainly always true in the United States of America, I would argue. Um, and likewise, it can be true that lived experience gives someone some genuine insight. So as a Jew who's experienced anti-Semitism in America, I grew up with a lot of like, you know, coin throwing and not swastikas in my books and, and the like. Um, I, I think I have something to say that others ought to listen to about anti-Semitism, yet that can't be the final word on the matter. It's also the case that uh, there are studies like the Pew study, I think in 2019, which showed that American Jews are the most admired religious community. So that's also a data point. My lived experience is a data point. Maybe your lived experience, which might be different from my lived experience, is another data point. And there are studies and other forms of data that can be used. And so what I worry that has happened is that, that this ideology is, is, um, is like a cuckoo bird, as Jonathan Haidt put it. Um, it. It's cuckoo, but it's not. It's like the cuckoo bird. It, it takes over other birds' nests and kicks out all the eggs. It's trying to dominate the discourse. And I think that ultimately is a problem. It's illiberal, and it ultimately also causes anti-Semitism. Right. Um, part of that, of course, is uh, the, the way this ideology has hardened into dogma. And as you write, dogma begets ever more extreme dogma. I'm quoting you, the more we defer to an irrational set of beliefs, the more extreme and more dangerous those beliefs come, become over time. Would you be good enough to expand on that insight a bit? Yeah, and this really comes through, uh, you know, I would say the powers of observation of watching this develop over many years. Um, you know, this this idea requires what uh, a guy named Matt Brunet called identitarian deference, that we defer to people's identities based on their lived experience of oppression. And once you sort of sign on the dotted line of deference, 
once you say somebody else has standing in the conversation, we don't, you're giving them permission to sort of articulate what the world looks like. And there's no there's no end to it. Like once you've said that that person has got the lived experience, I have to now listen. Then the next time someone else more radical comes along who makes the same claim, it's very hard to then say, well, I'm sorry, but I'm gonna draw the line there. Um, and so you're seeing this and you're seeing really radical expressions of this. So, you know, is um, does the sort of diversity training in your office necessarily breed anti-Semitism? You could argue, no, perhaps it's not that dogmatic. Perhaps it's just a little dogmatic, but, but it really lays the groundwork for more extreme voices to come in and say, we have a claim on how we're going to educate children. So it allows really radical voices in California in the form of ethnic studies to come in and say, we're going to articulate what the world looks like to minority communities. And by, by minority communities or marginalized groups, it's a carefully curated progressive subset of minority communities. It's not, it's not all black people, all Latino people who manifestly don't agree with this ideology. Um, it's a very specific subset that they're elevating and now saying you have to listen to them and we, they get the final word on what your children are going to learn in schools. That's when it becomes extremely dangerous and extremely problematic. And I think it all starts with us saying we don't have we're not qualified to have an opinion on these subjects. Right. So what you're describing, among other things, leads to groups that are preferred and other groups that are not preferred. And whenever one has that occur, of course, Jews in particular tend to suffer because we're considered off the charts with regard to the major categories that this dogma prefers. Um, I'm yeah, going I'm to, going to I'm going to illustrate it with with a with a, do, this particular slide here. Um, my apologies for those who are listening to this as a podcast. Um, but I'll, I can give you a link to it in, a, in show notes and the like. Um, this is a very common, what's called the wheel of privilege, and it's often used in diversity settings. And as you can see here, in the center of that is this notion of power, or you could say privilege. And the in the um, and the groups in the in that in the center circle, white, slim and muscular, salarized citizen. Are considered to these are considered categories of privilege that give one privilege inherently give one privilege, and the and the in the circle immediately outside that are um, groups that have less power, never married, manual labor, BIPOC, um, you know they're they're um, they're people of color, um, and then um, and then the circle outside of that are you know visibly black and brown people, vulnerable, poor. Um, you know, and so forth. Now, it may be the case that sometimes some of these categories do do give one more privilege or more oppression, depending on where you fall on this. But and you notice here, by the way, that Jews are nowhere to be found, and I, you wouldn't expect Jews, unless they were these were blatant anti-Semites, to to locate Jews on this wheel of privilege. But it's very obvious that this conditions society to think in a certain way. To think of each of these uh, these identity markers as inherently a source of, of of privilege or oppression, and Jews being considered white as we are by and large, become become sort of implicitly complicit in the more inner circles of the wheel of privilege, and that's what's happening. I think that's what we're seeing, and I can give examples of how that plays out 
in the public discourse. But but Jews, because of our success, and here in it, there's an interesting aspect of this, success is viewed as a category of privilege. In other words, there's no other reason why certain groups on average would do better than others other than complicity in white supremacy, right? If you believe that the only reason why some people don't do as well as other people is that the that 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 the the white supremacist dominant culture assigns them either privilege or oppression, then that implicates the people who are in the inner circles as being part of the privileged classes and Jews being on average successful in educational achievement or economics, they're going to find themselves on the wrong end of this formula very often. Right. Um, thanks for putting that before us. We'll return to it, I'm sure. It doesn't take a whole lot of analytical thinking, in fact, to look at that chart and take it apart and recognize that it has no validity, in fact, or at least very, very little validity. And while it privileges certain groups, it hurts other groups as well. I know a little bit about your own family background. On your mother's side, it's Iraqi Jewish, and you don't come from the elite by any means, nor do I. I'm a first-generation American Jew of Russian Jewish background. Uh, my parents didn't even make it into high school in this country, and yet they produced three sons. Two became professors, one became a doctor. How did all of that happen? Not because we were privileged, but because we worked very hard. And yet the very success that we and so many others like us and you have had counts against us today. Moreover, and I'd love for you to address the following, there is no such thing as we know in America as a unified, coherent Jewish community. There are lots and lots of Jews with many different Jewish points of view. Why does that chart that you just showed have appeal and win the support of certain segments of the American Jewish uh, community, as well as lots of people who are not Jewish? What makes yeah. it attractive? Yeah, well, first of all, I, it, it, you know, there, there's, there's been a lot written about what kind of ideas go viral that gain ground in society. And um, Richard Dawkins, among others, writes about memes, which are sort of idea viruses. And one thing about the idea virus, if we're going to call it woke, we don't have to, but uh, the woke idea virus is that um, it, it disables one's rational faculties. It says that it is inherently racist or privileged to even question this. So so therefore people tend not to question it when faced with that. You know, maybe it's given this country's own history of race and racism that many people are so readily willing and able to defer to an ideology and not recognize it as a major departure from what what we learned from during the civil rights struggle. They don't see that as different because it's it's coming seemingly from the same place, even if it's coming from a very different place. And so I think once when someone says, agree with this or you are racist, a lot of people will go along with that. I think Jews, um, by and large, we've we've see ourselves as sort of wrapped up in the progressive coalition historically. Um, Jews in America, that's not Jews in other diaspora communities, by the way, by and large, even in Canada, sort of the Jewish community in Canada does, is not as inextricably linked 
at, to the progressive movement as Jews in America are for, for a variety of historical and social reasons. And so because of that, Jews, when, when, um, when the when progressive politics begins to shift as it has in the past few decades, they're, they're so psychologically tied to progressive politics that they're not able to then stand out and critique it. Um, this is not the first time we've seen this. I mean, many Jews were drawn to communist ideology, as we, as you well know, and and um, and many Jews, even after Stalin took power and killed millions of people, continue to profess support for communist ideology and even the Soviet Union. So we tend to have a blind spot when it comes to uh, ideologies from the left that pr that promise universal redemption. Um, and so there is a segment of our community that strongly supports this. Um, we see it even within some mainstream, what you think are mainstream institutions as well. There's diversity training that that um, you know one of the religious denominations that offers that teaches rabbis and cantors to disrupt daily acts of whiteness, for example, as part of the diversity training. So you know this is this is entered sort of the the mainstream of our community. It, it, I, I'm not going to say it's dominant. I don't think it's the only idea, but I think it's it's one more than its fair share of mind share in the Jewish community. And I think you know that's why I'm going to argue that it's time to push back against it. Right. I want to take you back a number of years. Again, quoting from your book. Uh, in 1997, you were the Washington Regional Director of the AJC, and you referred to a conversation you had at the time by a colleague at the ADL, and one of the things you quote yourself as saying was the following, I assisted, now we're going back more than a couple right. decades, I insisted then that anti-Semitism was no longer a major factor in American Jewish life, you know, we all know that that's obviously changed a good deal. What's behind that change, would you say? First, and well, I won't say just first and foremost, because it's multi-causal. Your yeah. book deals with the ideological basis for it. But what happened round about the turn of the millennium, would you say, that helped to set the context for the growth and the rise of what we're living with today, of threatening anti-Semitism. Yeah. So, you know, if you go back to the early 1990s, those were, that was a very positive time. There was the Oslo Accords. There was the end of the Soviet Union. Um, we had successfully integrated uh, millions of Soviet Jews in both the United States and Israel. Um, uh, as, you know, Francis Fukuyama famously wrote, you know, in the, in the end of... Um, and um, the in the uh, what was it the end of uh, liberalism? No, I'm, I think um, I'm misstating it. Civilization, um, I think. And Right. Well, it's yeah. The end of history. My 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 apologies. The end of history thesis was that liberalism had won out in the eyes of the at that time. There were other people who were going in the opposite direction, like Charles Krautheimer, who said this was sort of the unipolar moment that we were enjoying a period in history that was going to be fast fleeting. And and Krautheimer turned out to be right. Um, I, you know, the, one of the first wake up calls, of course, was I mean, it was nine one one when it was very clear that we were um, we were still governed by the forces of history and that there were real dangers in this new order that was emerging. I think uh, right after that, by the way, for Jews, a wake up call came in the form of the Durban conference of, for against racism and xenophobia. I, I had several colleagues at the American Jewish Committee who attended that conference in Durban, South Africa. 
And these are the most progressive voices within the within the mainstream Jewish community who were shell-shocked at what they experienced. It was an anti-Semitic hate fest. And so for Jews, they realized right after the crumbling of the uh, of the um, Oslo Accords, that happened when, um, when the Israelis and the Palestinians um, failed to reach a, a peace deal in Camp David, um, we were back in the we were back into what we used to know in the Arab Israel conflict, and it was appearing all over campus. And there were there were protests, and there was a second intifada that erupted, and the like. So I think that was our sort of uh, wake up call was Durban and and the collapse of the uh, of the peace process, and. Um, and and I knew that there was and, and it was at that time um, the writer Jonathan Rosen dubbed it the new anti-Semitism in the pages of the New York Times that it was it was it was catching on in the left. Look, I think what's happened and there are larger forces at work here. Like you know, it's sort of the failure of globalization, um, you know, and and to to sort of. Uh, to to and the leaving out of certain constituencies and um, then the internet and the ability for for marginal voices to gain um, a louder role in the public sphere, these these forces and gerrymandering in the American political system, which empowered um, certain you know radicals in each political party and the like, these forces sort of coalesce into ideologies and to conspiracy theories and the like. So on the right, you may see it in the form of, you know, the great replacement theory, right? The idea that that um, ordinary Americans are being replaced by immigrants and Jews are doing the replacing. Um, on the left, I think it takes the form of, of critical social justice ideology or wokeism or whatever we're going to call it. Um, these are simple explanations for very complicated social conditions that people are latching onto in this environment. And so um, I think that's what we're facing. Th that's the larger, those are the larger forces. And I, I think it's very hard to talk about the growth of anti-Semitism without talking about these larger ideological forces that have taken shape in society. I, I call this the inseverability thesis, which is that it's that it's a mistake to, to sever the connection between anti-Semitism and the growth of larger ideologies. I think that distorts what's happening and distorts our own strategic mindset in facing them. Right. Gunter, let's bring you into the conversation as well. Most of my own work focuses on developments in this country, but you spend a good deal of time looking at what's happening in certain European countries, Germany and France in particular. Want to say anything at all about any resemblances or differences that you see in the countries that you're most best acquainted with? Yeah, it's um, it's interesting to to make a comparison between the U.S. and and Europe. You have certain taboos as well in European um, discourses, but they were a little bit different. But what is I think is a parallel here that um, often then it uh, it enables what you said in the beginning. It enables like an anti-Semitic climate to thrive in a way if certain problems are not addressed. Uh, properly, and if uh, if dogmas come in, and uh, things are not getting discussed, be it, be it migration, whether Jews are getting blamed uh, in some ways, um, or um, saying that uh, you cannot talk about uh, Islamist extremism without also talking about uh, some what then is framed as Jewish Muslim uh, tensions which is not the case. There are attacks against Jews 
Um, and it's not as if there were two communities uh, really um, um, fighting each other. So I think there are some of these parallels, um, but it's 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 still very different. And I think this, what is, it's often, and I would like to hear your view on that, David. Um, for me, it seems, I mean, I'm relatively new to this country, seven years, and a lot of things have changed in this seven or eight years now. Um, but of course, what is very important to this country are discussions about uh, anti-Black racism. This is um, the history of this country. It's just uh, makes it very re relevant topic. So I think to um, grapple with that, some, as you said, some simplifying ideas about it and how to solve uh, ongoing racism, um, yeah, lead to this, uh, what you showed us, this uh, wheel of wheel of privilege, which then come to very like easy sounding solutions, which in fact just um, don't address the problems that we have, but just that, that's my impression of that, but I don't know. So I would like to hear like how you um, really saw that. You mentioned Durban, of course, and. I guess when you were working, were you working already with the HSC perhaps and you saw that firsthand and, but what were other points where you really saw that there are some dogmas that make it then very difficult to address problems? Yes, yeah, I think that's exactly right. And um, in the, in the uh, late 1990s, I was a young uh, staffer at the American Jewish Committee and I was part of a program called Leadership Washington. And we had multicultural day in Leadership Washington, where we were going to learn about multicultural dynamics. I was very excited. This was sort of right up my alley. I, I um, you know, always appreciated, you know, ethnic diversity, religious diversity and the like. And um, the first speaker comes up and he says, racism equals prejudice plus power. Where did this come from? And I remember confronting him afterwards saying, I'm, that's not my understanding of racism. And he said, a matter of factly, well, that's what it is. And I and I I wrote a couple of years later, I wrote my first column on this, saying that, well, if this idea of racism equals prejudice plus power catches on, then that means that groups that are perceived as powerful, like Jews, will not be, be viewed as victims. And groups that are viewed as powerless are not capable of being uh, perpetrators. And um, and so I started to see this. I mean, this was in the early 2000s. I had written a memo to my American Jewish Committee colleagues um around the same time saying that i've started to see in civil rights circles that i was involved with that some of my some of the ethnic communities were no longer portraying america as a imperfect as a flawed country that was striving to live up to its own ideals but rather as a pervasively racist country and i thought that that had very serious implications for the discourse and into how these communities would come to see and understand America. And I thought that that was a problem and that we in the American Jewish community should not go along with that discourse. And, and, and in fact, we had a, a meeting in New York City with where we discussed that in depth afterwards. So I, I was seeing this very early on and I was also around um, a few years later when, um, when a, a, a publication came out of the American Jewish Committee by a guy named Alvin Rosenfeld. Um, it was called Progressive Thought in the New Anti-Semitism. And it was about how some Jews were engaging in a kind of progressive thought that were fanning the flames of anti-Semitism. Now, one would have thought that that's, you know, you can certainly critique it, but um, but it, it, it caused an 
complete furor. It was one of the biggest controversies I remember during my entire, you know, um, 13 years at the American Jewish Committee. And um, as you can see here, it was in the New York Times, so not just once. And there was a column in the Washington Post by Richard Cohen and, um, and, and so forth. And so to me, that was a precursor to what we're experiencing now, just this, this very stifling sense that these ideas were beyond the pale. And that we couldn't even talk about them because they implicated progressives somehow. Um, and I think we, the, and as you know, as uh, um, as Professor Rosenfeld said in the beginning, um, dogma begets ever more extreme dogma. And so you start to see things like like this. Um, it, um, this is uh, th there's a woman um, who tweets out. Let me just give you some context here. There's a woman named Natalie Hopkinson, who's a professor at Howard, who wrote a piece about the women behind the Million Man March. That was Louis Farrakhan's march that, um, you know, and Farrakhan, of course, is an anti-Semite. And she, this woman, challenged the, the writer saying, your piece in the New York Times makes me sad. I wish your glowing article about Farrakhan was the whole truth. The reality is, whether you like it or not, vile, unrepentant, and relentless anti-Semitism is part of his legacy as well. And the, the 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 writer of that piece, Natalie Hopkinson, says, you know what makes me sad? Literally million people involved in this essay. You don't center the marchers. You don't center the Black women are named and linked. You don't even center Farrakhan. You center yourself and your feelings. So she's dismissing her complaint about anti-Semitism as just a whine as a wine. And that's that's what happens here is that when you defer to certain people to define reality for you, anti-Semitism is going to gain the, be the on the short end of the stick. So it's easy to understand why people become sort of um, be, become insensitive to it. You saw this in places like Stanford University, um, you know, and, and, and uh, I think it was around 2020, um, a a psychiatrist at the uh, psychiatric clinic at Stanford University um, I was part of a diversity, equity, inclusion discussion, and uh, he and a, a Jewish social worker from that um, were 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 watching a town hall meeting at Stanford that was what you call Zoom bomb. That there was swastikas and racist statements made um, about black people and so forth. And when the diversity, equity, and inclusion committee got together in their clinic and talked about what happened, they refused to discuss the swastikas and the anti-Semitism that emerged from it. And when the Jews, uh, Ron Albacher, the doctor, and Sarah Levin, the social worker, complained about it and said, well, what about the anti-Semitism here? They were told that they were decentering anti-Black racism. So you see that today, and if you go back to, you could almost draw a straight line um, from, from the, uh, from Professor Rosenfeld's piece here, that you can't talk about this, it's off limits, because somehow these are well-meaning people that don't deserve to be scrutinized. And I think that we, we allowed that discourse to gain too much ground, and now we're facing the consequences of it. Very, very good. Um... We could go on and on and on. We soon want to involve our listeners as well in the discussion. I just want to ask you one last question, although I wish we had more time for many more questions, but those will come your way from our listeners in just a minute. Um, the big question before us, though, recognizing uh, the threats that are posed by the ideology that you have concerned yourself with so much uh, what can we do to push back against it? What can we do 
to keep these threats at a minimum. We can't get rid of them altogether, but they can cause and are already causing great harm. At the end of your book, you talk some about the ethnic studies curriculum being developed in California. We all know that what begins in California doesn't stay only in California. So we have, if all of this stuff succeeds, a very large institutionalized problem before us. Anti-Semitism is always bad. And when it takes episodic forms, we need to pay attention to it. When it takes chronic, systemic, institutionalized forms, we're in trouble. What can we do to confront all that? Yeah, so I think there are a few things. Thank you for the question. Um, Number one, you know, what we have here, what we're seeing here around sort of the overall liberal atmosphere and the anti-Semitism that emerges out of it is what some have referred to as a spiral of silence. It's this sort of reinforcement of, of, of certain taboos in society that make people afraid of confronting it. And the way you get around spirals of silence is to create spirals of courage. You, you get people to speak out. You organize people in a way. If, if the opposition to free expression is, is um, you know, in, in groups, the, the response has to be in groups. So for example, we have a letter, my organization, the Jewish Institute for Liberal Values, um, facilitated a letter that was signed by around uh, 450 academics to date um, and Jewish academics that warns of this ideology taking hold in universities and also cites the how the ideology can fan the flames of anti-Semitism, why it's dangerous. Once you have 450 scholars signing something like that, you can begin to give people some cover to be able to push back against it. So I think uh, pushing back against spirals of silence and creating spirals of courage is very important. Um, the second thing I think we can do is really push back much harder than maybe the mainstream Jewish organizations have been willing to do so far against the real extreme versions of this. You mentioned ethnic studies in California. Uh, the liberated ethnic studies in California is teaching that Israel is a settler colonialist state. It's teaching that that Zionism is inherently a, a colonial settler enterprise. And, and I think it's very, very dangerous. And I don't think the Jewish community has done nearly enough to stop it from happening. Um, recently, there was this effort um, called by a group, that newly formed group called the Institute for the Critical Study of Zionism. And they're trying to get themselves established in universities. And they have a conference in October that they've advertised at both NYU and at University of California, Santa Cruz. We've been pushing back against it because for one thing, this organization has a political litmus test for participating in the conference, which is against goes against academic freedom and even the discrimination policies of these universities. And we've been extremely successful. We've gotten NYU to completely back out of it and say that they won't even rent them a room. And we've gotten the University of Santa Cruz to distance themselves from the conference, say it violates academic freedom. They won't push, they won't go the next step yet of asking their, their various academic centers to altogether pull out of the conference, but they've gone much further than I expected. When you push back when you, against this and you say, I'm sorry, but this is discriminatory, and you do so forcefully and you organize others to do it, I think you can make some headway. And thirdly, and may, perhaps most importantly, in my view, is that we have to start to build a new coalition in this country. We're not going to be 
safe from the far right, and we're not going to be faced safe from the far left. If the center, the political center, the moderate middle of this country, it doesn't become stronger and better organized. And I think the great Jewish project and the most important thing you, we can ultimately do to fight anti-Semitism is to begin to build a new American political center that is not necessarily equidistance from the from both the right and the left, no, but that is able to talk to itself, that talks to uh, that that favors dialogue, open dialogue and discourse, and academic freedom, and and the like. Um, these are often new immigrant communities, like Asian American communities, that don't want their kids, you know, gifted, talented program to be ended in New York City, or like in San Francisco, don't want all the high schools to be renamed from the Thomas Jefferson School to the, you know, to um, the Malcolm X School, who want there to, uh, who believe in rational discourse. Uh, these are very, very often Black parents who are perhaps even a plurality of their own community who don't want their kids to be taught that the school system and the entire system is rigged against them. They want to be taught that their kids to be taught that there's opportunity that they can avail. These are our allies. These are our new allies. And it, it may take some doing, but I think we can sort of wean ourselves off of our old progressive alliances, not entirely perhaps, but mostly, and start to form this new center-left, center-right coalition that's capable of supporting liberal values in America. Going back to this idea of the inseverability thesis, the idea that we can't sever the larger ideological trends from the outgrowth of anti-Semitism. We've got to be able to fight for uh, a rational America against what Jonathan Haidt calls structural stupidity that has sort of taken hold in our in our political and social life. Good Thank to you. hear you on that point and everything else you've discussed. Gunther, let's open it with your help yeah. to people who've tuned in. And David will just take a brief time yeah. before we have those people online. Very good. Before we do that, so I'm, I'm doing, I'm enabling the chat now, but I want to challenge you on one uh, thing. So you you said, I'm not sure if I understood you correctly, when you said um, that um, there is this notion of power and uh, racism is is uh, power and racism, they need to go together before... Prejudice plus power. Right. So do you, I wouldn't dismiss this completely because it does make an, a difference if people in power are racist or if people who don't, who have less power are racist. The impact is just different. Wouldn't you agree with yeah. that? And I think this is also why this wheel of privilege, it has some uh, truth to it, but just right. a dogmatic view on that. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I appreciate it's, you. I appreciate you posing that. And I think as with a lot of things, there are nuggets of, of truth and legitimacy in this ideological framework. The idea of intersectionality, for example, that um, if one is both a black black and a woman that they face sort of double jeopardy can be true. It's not always true, but it can be true. What this ideology does is it, it, it links in a very rigid way the identity and privilege and power or identity and oppression. So if you're black, you're race, you're, you're, you're oppressed. If you're white, you're, you're privileged and the like. I think that's very rigid. I don't, and I think it, it easily congels into dogma that we're seeing here. So it's not that I that I don't think that that can be true. Of course, if somebody's in power and is a racist or an anti-Semite, they're more likely to do harm. I think that's absolutely true. But I don't. It's not always true, and because it's not always true, it becomes it becomes easily weaponized as it has been. 
Thank you.